Hello, my friends, and welcome to Help Me Think. I'm your host, Starla West, and today on Help Me Think, I will share with you the seven most common mistakes leaders make when making decisions. But first, let's take a moment to hear more about our title sponsor, Business Furniture. Help Me Think is sponsored by Business Furniture, a 100-year-old organization focusing on innovation since 1922. That's right. You heard me correctly. Business Furniture just celebrated its 100th anniversary of creating spaces where people can work better, learn better, and feel better. They truly are the experts when it comes to creating spaces where employees can show up and do their best thinking and best work. As you all know, hybrid work has gone mainstream, and it's one of the biggest economic and cultural changes facing leaders today. Most organizations that choose hybrid work are trying to offer a balance between the flexibility that people want and the need to bring employees together to foster collaboration and innovation. And these guys know how to do it. So let Business Furniture help build a sense of community for your company. Check them out at businessfurniture.net. And now, back to our episode. Welcome back. Decisions are one of any leader's most important responsibilities, yet it seems to me not enough time is dedicated to helping leaders develop a systematic process for doing so, so that when they make decisions, they make them quickly and efficiently and get the results they want. What has led me to this conclusion is the observation of leaders consistently making the same mistakes over and over again that ultimately make the decision-making process more difficult than it needs to be or leads to less than desirable results. So in this episode of Help Me Think, it's my intention to share those mistakes with you so that you can avoid the pitfalls of poor decision-making. With that, let's get after it. Potential pitfall number one, not keeping your bias for action in check. I phrased it that way because having a bias for action is a strength. Being able to make decisions quickly and to move them into action is a very good thing. What I'm talking about here is allowing your bias for action to get out of hand. When any strength is taken to an extreme, it can in fact become a liability. And that's what happens when high achieving leaders let their bias for action get out of hand, especially during the decision making process. What happens is they begin viewing decision-making as simply a task that must be completed rather than a systematic process that should be followed to ensure a high-quality outcome. In other words, what they think to themselves when they think about making decisions, no matter if they're big decisions or small decisions, is that I just need to get this done. I need to check it off my list. And when they treat decision-making that way, They're at risk of moving way too quickly without adequate information and thorough assessment. And then that might lead to outcomes that they don't want or outcomes that are less than desirable. And it all points back to their bias for action and not taking a moment to really press the pause button and work themselves through a process that's going to ensure a much more informed decision. Now, what this boils down to is a values conflict. When we let our bias for action get out of hand and we don't keep it in check, what we're saying is, I value done 
more than I value engaging in a process that's going to ensure a well-informed decision. Let me say that again, because this is important. Ultimately, when we let our bias for action get out of hand, what we are saying is I value done more than I value the process, engaging in a process that's going to ensure an informed decision. Now, I think it's really important at this point to stop and to explain what I mean when I say systematic process, because my my concern is that a lot of you are going to hear when you hear systematic process, you're going to hear, oh, my goodness, Starla's saying I need a process every single time I make a decision. And that process could take days and days and days. No, that's not what I'm saying. The most effective leaders are the ones that have a systematic process that they lean on every single time they need to make a decision, no matter if it's a big decision or a small decision or a decision that needs to be made in a matter of minutes or a decision that may need to take a couple of months. They follow the same process every single time. And the reason they do that is it not only elicits an informed decision, but it creates efficiencies, right? Because if we have a systematic process that we follow every single time, It's going to become habitual. And when it becomes habitual, we can move ourselves through that process really quickly and trust that we're doing what we need to do to make a good decision. So when you hear me say systematic process throughout the remainder of this episode, remember that I'm not talking about a process that should take days and days and days. I'm simply talking about a process that you can trust that if you follow it every single time, You're going to get to decisions that are well-informed and are much more likely to elicit the outcomes that you want. So this is one of the most common mistakes I see high-achieving leaders make. It's potential pitfall number one, which is not keeping their bias for action in check. Let's move on now to potential pitfall number two, allowing your discomfort with ambiguity to paralyze you. On one end of the spectrum, we have pitfall number one which is moving too quickly due to a bias for action. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have pitfall number two, which is moving too slowly due to a discomfort with ambiguity. We all know those individuals, and perhaps you're one of them, who want to gather as much information as they possibly can and do as much analysis as they possibly can to eliminate all uncertainty prior to making a decision. Now, just like pitfall number one, this actually comes from a place of strength. What they're doing is they're allowing it to get out of hand so much so that they continue to gather as much information as they possibly can. They have as many discussions as they possibly can, and they do as much assessment as they possibly can in an attempt to make sure that when a decision is made, they are 100% certain it is the right decision. But there's a serious problem with that. Decision-making is a game of probability. Let me say that again because that's a really important statement. Decision-making is a game of probability, which means we have to be comfortable with taking risks. It's a rare occurrence that we're always going to have all the information we could possibly have and know everything we need to know when we are making important decisions. However, if you insist on this, what it's going to lead to is analysis paralysis and an unwillingness to take risks. And it could cause you 
to fill in the blanks unnecessarily with potentially inaccurate and harmful information. So what do I mean by that? We humans, we really don't like uncertainty. So much so that when there are unknowns, we would prefer to fill in those blanks in a way that allows us to turn those unknowns into knowns. We will take guesses or we will make assumptions just to fill in those blanks because what it does is it creates a false sense of certainty for us. But sometimes that can be really harmful to the decision-making process if we are not filling in those blanks with really educated guesses and measured assumptions. And sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can, in fact, fill in the blanks with educated guesses and measured assumptions. But sometimes it is best to just let those unknowns exist. And I have found this can be really difficult for some leaders but it's essential for an effective decision-making process. In his book titled Human Energy, author John Ingalls states this. He says, the degree to which ambiguity can be tolerated determines the amount of difficulty an individual can and is willing to meet and overcome in coping with the problems of human life and in taking advantage of the opportunities life has to offer. Now, Mr. Ingalls writes a lot like me. He writes really long sentences. So um, I'm going to read that again for you to make sure you captured it. He says, the degree to which ambiguity can be tolerated determines the amount of difficulty an individual can and is willing to meet and overcome in coping with the problems of human life and in taking advantage of the opportunities that life has to offer. The bigger the problem, the bigger the challenge, the bigger the opportunity, the higher level of importance it brings to the table, most likely means it's also going to bring some ambiguity. There's always going to be unknowns. So we have to get comfortable with the fact that decision-making is a game of probability. It's a gamble. And we're taking this gamble, we're making this decision um, in a measured way, acknowledging the fact that we don't know everything we need to know. We don't have all the information that we'd like to have, but we need to keep moving forward. And that's why I say decision-making is a game of probability, and that's why we have to be comfortable with taking risks. A few months ago, an executive leader sat in front of me and told me this story. She said, Starla, I have a top performer who she's dragging her heels on a very important project. And every time I ask her about it, she hasn't even started it yet. So I'm trying to decide if I should just take the project back and do it myself. And quite honestly, I don't have the time for that. Or do I delegate it to someone else on my team? But my everyone on my team is maxed out. They really don't, I don't have anyone that has the bandwidth to take on this project. But then I thought, well, maybe... Maybe I should just sit her down and tell her she needs to drop everything and make this a priority and to get it done and not to work on anything else until this project is finished. Now, there was a pause in the conversation, so I responded with a question. I asked her, do we really have a good understanding? Do we truly understand why this top performer of yours is dragging her heels on this project? 
Because if we don't understand why, I think we should take some time to try to understand that because those might not be your only options. Time and time again, I watch executive leaders make this mistake, which is pitfall number three, solutioning way too early. Diving in and offering up solutions before they've taken the time to thoroughly diagnose the problem and gain a solid understanding of what it is that they're really trying to solve for. And this comes from a, from a bias for action as well. Let's be honest, there are, most of us are fixers. We love fixing things. And when there's a problem, we dive right in and we dive right in with potential solutions. But this can be really harmful when it comes to the decision-making process, especially if we've not taken the time to really understand what it is that we're trying to solve for. So the most effective decision-makers make it a habit of always asking this question early on in the beginning. Have I or have we pulled back the layers of the onion enough to truly understand what it is that we're trying to solve for? And if not, they create the space that is needed to thoroughly diagnose the problem or the challenge or the opportunity that sits in front of them, knowing full well that if they take some time to do that, additional options, additional solutions, additional pathways might come to the surface and the, and the initial solutions that we thought we had might not might be eliminated. We might decide, oh, initially I thought that this might be an option, but now having spent some time really thinking about this, pulling the layers of the onion back and gaining a solid understanding of why this problem exists, yeah, those solutions just aren't going to work. However, the other solutions we have available to us now are these. So that's potential pitfall number three, solutioning way too early. Let's dig into potential pitfall number four, mistaking opinions, speculation, and assumption as facts. Throughout the entirety of the decision-making process, it is essential that we separate the facts from opinions, speculation, and assumptions. All four play an important role in the decision-making process, but their influence will vary. Therefore, they should be treated differently. Things can really go awry when we treat opinions and speculation and assumptions as facts. So throughout the entire process, we should challenge everything that is presented as a fact to ensure that it is, in fact, a fact. And we can do that by asking these questions. Is it true? Can we be 100% certain that it is true? What is the evidence that proves this to be true? And are we in any way misinterpreting that evidence? When you make it a habit of asking these questions throughout the entire decision-making process, anytime something is presented as a fact, you're going to improve the overall clarity that everyone has when it comes to making this decision. And in the end, we're going to treat facts as they should be treated. And then we're going to keep in perspective, the assumptions, the opinions, and the speculation. And that's how we improve the overall clarity. So my recommendation to you to avoid this pitfall is to make sure you make it a habit of asking these questions whenever someone presents something or you yourself present something as a fact. 
Is it true? Can we be absolutely certain it is true? What is the evidence that proves this to be true? And are we in any way misinterpreting that evidence? I promise you, if you get into the habit of asking this question, you are going to decrease the likelihood that you fall victim to potential pitfall number four, which is mistaking opinions, assumptions, and speculation as facts. Okay, we're moving right along. Next up is potential pitfall number five, allowing emotions to distort your perception of reality. We should always allow our emotions to fuel our passion and our will to succeed, but we should never let them cloud our judgment. The goal, though, is not to remove emotions or to become emotionless. The goal, rather, is to become consciously aware of them so that we can regulate them to ensure that we're maintaining clarity. Emotions have a purpose. They help us to adapt. They're helpful, functional, and fundamental. And they're not always reliable. So we want to make sure that we're never going on autopilot with them. So the goal is to become consciously aware of our emotions so that we can create the space we need to cognitively challenge them to make sure that we're keeping everything in perspective and we're not allowing them to distort our perception of what's going on around us. So the question now becomes, how can you do that? Well, emotional regulation is a big topic and it really does deserve its own episode. So in an upcoming episode, we're going to dive really deep into it. But for now, here's what you can do if you're not already doing it. When you suspect your emotions have elevated, notice it. Take note. And now, how do you know when your emotions have elevated? It's when your part, when your heart has started pumping very quickly. Think about it. Whenever we're experiencing something unpleasant or uncomfortable, our heart will will most likely begin to beat really quickly. And the reason it is doing that is because it thinks we're in fight or flight. And as it's beating very quickly, physiologically, it's moving a majority of our blood to our major muscle groups to prepare for that fight or flight. But in reality, it's rare that we're getting ready to fight Godzilla or King Kong, right? In most cases, we're not really preparing for fight or flight especially in a business environment. So we really don't need for that heart to be pumping as quickly as it, as it is. But we've got to notice that it's pumping so that we can slow it down. So when we notice that that heart is pumping very quickly, the next thing we want to do is figuratively press the pause button, take a pause, and create the space we need to take a breath. There is power in the pause and magic in the breath. And for some of you out there, I'm sure you're thinking, oh, Lordy, here she goes. But but just stop for a second and hear me out. The reason there's power in the pause and magic in the breath is because if we take a moment and allow ourselves to engage in some long inhales and some long exhales, physiologically, what we're doing is we're forcing our heart to slow down. And when our heart slows down, it will stop pumping blood to all of our major muscles and, and, and take some of that blood and, and move it right back up to the brain. And that blood contains the oxygen that our brain needs to think clearly. 
So this is why this step is so important. Once we recognize that our emotions have elevated, we want to create a pause so that we can take the time we need to just breathe and slow that heart rate down. And once we've done that, now we're in a much better place to cognitively challenge those emotions. And the way that we do that is by replacing those emotions with curiosity. And we want to start asking questions like, why am I feeling this way? What just triggered this? What am I feeling and why am I feeling this way? And what evidence is there to prove that I should be feeling the way that I'm feeling right now? When you start asking questions like that, you're just forcing yourself to become consciously aware of the emotions that are at play and to start thinking more objectively about whether or not these emotions are appropriate for the situation at hand. Because as I said earlier, sometimes our emotions aren't always reliable. Oftentimes they're coming from our past experiences and they can fool us into believing things are happening or not happening that may or may not be happening. So we want to just not trust them explicitly and we want to challenge them to make sure that we don't go on on autopilot where they can lead us astray. So these are the three steps that I encourage you to engage in right now if you're not already because they will force you to return to a place of objectivity to ensure that your emotions were not are not leading you astray and therefore not going to distort your perception of reality. That's potential pitfall number 5, allowing your emotions to distort your perception of reality. Five down, only two more to go. Let's dig into potential pitfall number six, truncating debate to avoid conflict. Critical thinking and rigorous debate invariably lead to conflict. It is essential to bring issues into focus and to allow us to make informed decisions. What most leaders don't realize, though, is that conflict comes in two forms. The first form is cognitive conflict. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's when we're disagreeing about the work at hand. Cognitive conflict is when we disagree about ideas or we have differing views about the best way to proceed forward. We're simply in disagreement about the work or whatever it is that we're discussing. However, the second form of conflict can come when cognitive conflict becomes very personal in nature. And then heated arguments lead to personal attacks. And that's called effective conflict. Effective conflict is when the conflict has become very personal and we have walked away or departed from engaging on a cognitive level. So as a leader, if you want to be really effective at decision making, especially when you're leading your team through decision making, the goal should be this, to be intentional with differentiating between the two forms of conflict so that you can separate them. Because what you want to do is you want to increase cognitive conflict while keeping effective conflict low. And the way to do that is to make rigorous debate the rule rather than the exception. So the goal, I'm going to go back over that because it's incredibly important. The goal is to make sure that we can differentiate between cognitive conflict and effective conflict so that we can separate the two to keep cognitive conflict high and effective conflict low. And the way that we do that is by making rigorous debate 
the rule rather than the exception. So now I'm sure you're probably thinking, well, how do we do that, Starla? And that's a fantastic question. And the good news is, is that there's all kinds of different ways, tools and strategies that you can use to make rigorous debate just part of your overall decision-making process. So much so that it really does deserve its own episode as well, just like emotional regulation. So we're going to dig really deep into all those strategies and all those tactics in an upcoming episode. But for now, here's what I encourage you to do. Remind yourself over and over and over again, and remind your team over and over and over again, that cognitive conflict is good and emotionally mature professionals do not make it personal. Because here's the problem. When we're engaged in conflict, especially in the business environment, even though it really truly is cognitive conflict, some professionals can start to take it personally. And as soon as they start to take cognitive conflict personally, it's now turned into effective conflict. And emotionally intelligent, emotionally mature professionals do their very best to avoid doing that. Or when they catch their, catch themselves doing that, their goal is to walk themselves back out of it. So moving forward, if you really want to be effective at decision-making, if you want to be effective at engaging in decision-making with others and leading others through the decision-making process, what you want to do is remind everyone that vigorous debate is the rule, not the exception, because when we engage in cognitive conflict, we're going to bring all the issues into focus. We're going to get them all out on the table. And it's going to allow us to have a robust discussion that ultimately will lead to an informed decision. Their job, your job, is to make sure that they do not turn cognitive conflict into effective conflict. And emotionally mature professionals simply don't. So that is potential pitfall number six truncating debate to avoid conflict. If you want to avoid poor decision-making, this is definitely a pitfall you want to avoid. And that brings us to our seventh and final potential pitfall when making decisions. Thinking short-term only and not playing the long game. During the decision-making process, after we have taken the time to really thoroughly understand either the problem, the challenge, or the opportunity that we're trying to solve for, there will come a time that we're ready to put all of our potential options, solutions, or pathways forward out on the table. And when we do that, what we want to do is we want to take the time to play each one of those out. And the reason we want to do that is as we're playing out those options, if we were to go with this option, what would that look like? In essence, is what I mean when I say play things out. If, we're to, if we were to go with this option, what would it look like? What would it require? As we do that, we want to consider both the short-term and the long-term implications so that we can uncover any potential unintended consequences that, if we aren't aware of them from the outset, could come back to bite us in the butt a little later on. And the way that we avoid that is by considering both the short-term and the long-term implications as we play out each potential solution option, or pathway forward. Here's what this could look like. As we play out each one of those, 
one of the things that we want to think about is the trade-offs or the sacrifices we might have to make if we go with this particular option. If there was a perfect solution out there, the decision-making process would be easy. But that's the whole reason why decision-making can sometimes be difficult is because there isn't a perfect option. And the reason there isn't a perfect option is because there's pros and cons. And as part of those cons are probably going to be trade-offs that we have to make or sacrifices we're going to have to make to go with a particular option. And so we want to go into every decision with our eyes wide open. We want to be aware of what those trade-offs and sacrifices are going to be. We want to be able to plan for them, possibly work around them, and maybe even mitigate them so that they don't have as much of an impact on us as they possibly could. But one of the mistakes I see my clients make is that as they're playing things out, they're only thinking about the short term. So as they consider trade-offs and sacrifices, they're only thinking about the trade-offs and sacrifices in the context of right now. And what I want to encourage all of you to do is as you play out the options that you have in front of you, as you move forward in your decision-making processes, make sure you think about both short-term and long-term implications. So there you have it. There are the seven most common mistakes that I see executive leaders make when they are engaged in the decision-making process. These are the pitfalls that you could potentially run into if you're not aware of them. Not keeping your bias for action in check. Allowing your discomfort with ambiguity to paralyze you. Solutioning way too early, way before you've ever diagnosed what it is that you're trying to solve for. Mistaking opinions, speculation, assumptions as facts, allowing your emotions to distort your perception of reality, truncating debate to avoid conflict, and last but certainly not least, thinking short-term only and not playing the long game. Okay, gang, we made it to the end. You hung in there with me. Thank you so very much. So here's what's next. I'm really curious to know what your reaction is to this episode. If you have thoughts, ideas, questions, feedback, please share them with me. Go to starlawest.com forward slash podcast, find the page for this particular episode, and in the comment section, share your reaction with me. Or if you have best practices or other things that you do that allow you to avoid these pitfalls, please share them with us because we can all learn from each other. And don't forget, there is a free downloadable worksheet that contains almost all of the information that I shared with you today. So if you want to download that worksheet, just head on over to starlawest.com forward slash podcast, and it will be there waiting for you to download. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me today. My name is Starla West. I'm your host of Help Me Think, and I will see you soon in an upcoming episode. Until then, take care.